I never thought about how until I was here. Having got here, it suits me in, in many ways. It is a little on the, on the edge of things. I think even its natives would say that. A cut price crowd, urban yet simple, dwelling where only salesmen and relations come. And across there, over the estuary of the Humber, is Yorkshire, and you can just see how where Philip Larkin lives. It's a place of thunder, clouds, dark red brick Georgian streets where they survive, and steeples and domes. And beyond Hull was the North Sea. If anywhere's the end of England and the end of land, it's Hull and beyond Hull. Welcome to the podcast. It's a podcast about the culture of Hull, what we do and who we are. We're going to interview the people who are shaping the cultural landscape of this city and talk to individuals who can give us a unique insight into what defines us. Historians, artists, writers, musicians, performers, broadcasters, public servants. First of all, though, an explanation of our name. The podcast is, of course, a nod to Deadbod, the now famous piece of graffiti which for decades adorned the humber-facing side of a shed on Alexandra Dock. You probably know this story, but if not, I'll tell it to you. Let's have a bit of Jim Reeves to set the scene. Welcome to my world. Okay, so Len Rood, better known as Pongo, and his pal Gordon Mason were Hull Mariners, and they'd been working together on a boat called the Englishman. It was the 1960s, and on their last trip, the skipper had found a gull with a broken wing, and he'd spent three weeks nursing it back to health with improvised lolly stick splints. At last, the bird was brought up on deck, and it was ready to be released to the sky once again. Just then, the bosun walked past, and a big swing of his heavy boot put paid to that. The skipper was distraught, and the gull now covered the lower part of the forecastle. Three weeks of care and sleepless nights, and what have I got? wailed the skipper. A dead bod, replied Pongo, correctly, but unnecessarily. The bird was dead, but the legend was born, when Pongo and Gordon, well-oiled from a night in the Oriental on Eden Road, immortalised it in white paint on the corrugated wall of that quayside shed. Over the next four decades, the image became a familiar navigation point for shipping. And when the jetty was eventually demolished to make way for the Siemens Greenport development, the rusty piece of metal was saved from the scrapyard by a campaign that has widened its fame amongst landlubbers. Stories are what culture and identities are built upon. We've got a deep and rich seam of them here in Hull, and we're going to mine it later with historian Dr Rob Robinson. But before that, let's hear about much more recent events with me and my friend Dan Sproats. We met in his kitchen and we looked back over the last few months. I'm with Dan in his kitchen. Yep. And we're going to talk about all the, um, all the kind of fun cultural things that happened over summer. It's been the, the time when we've had Exciting. the whole city centre, the whole of it's in the middle of a makeover. <coughs> I don't know when you're listening to this, but it's, um, it's been pretty tough 
hasn't it, for a while, getting around Hull. Yeah. It's, People asking if it's going to be worth it. Like, you know, if you get rats in a maze, yeah. eventually they learn to sort of, where, where the food is or whatever. And yeah, their brains right. develop how to kind of get through the maze. Yeah. And every time you go into town, you have to find a new route to Costa or, <laughs> or to the city hall. Yeah. But yeah, Orange Barriers, the, the iconic image <laughs> of Hull in 2016. Yeah, it's been pretty grim. Somebody said at least when it was the Nazis we could shoot back. But <laughs> yeah, so but it's, it's kind of like that time when somebody's maybe had surgery and, the, and it's about to be the moment when the bandages are going to be unpeeled. Right. You know, and loads of Victorian doctors are going to see on January the 1st if it's worth it. Or if somebody's had cosmetic surgery and yeah. they sort of look with horror that, that their nose or breasts don't look like what they would imagine. <laughs> and the, the surgeon say, no, no, you need time for the swelling to go down. <laughs> it won't look like this. Don't worry. Don't panic. But there are bits that are open. Some of the cobble stuff, like Humber Street's nearly finished. Oh, yeah. I mean, round there is looking and it looks amazing. Brilliant. Yeah. And they're going to put some, I think the last thing that we'll see is the water features. I think they're having some kind of reflection pools in Trinity Square. Right. And it, if it looks anything like the... Um, the kind of water fountains and features do in Granary Square in London, they're just, just north of King's Cross. Yeah. It'll be absolutely brilliant. Oh, um, wow, yeah. Yeah, kids can kind of play in it. And Everyone loves a water feature. Absolutely, right in the middle of town. In fact, the, the one in London, you can control that app, I think. Right. You can control the patterns. It's quite clever. Other things that have been happening, uh, Beverly Road at the moment has got a, a bus stop uh, which has been carpeted and has got speakers. Have you seen this? Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, has got speakers and I've not. I've it's driven, like a sofa. I've like, driven past. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it looks good, but apparently it's like the history of the area that's being pumped out. But yeah, it looks fantastic. And it's right on the corner of Terry Street, which is the name of one of my favourite collections of poetry by Douglas Dunn. And in a later episode of this podcast, we're going to do a special uh, look at that collection of poetry. That's for another time. He's not the one who's got that line, that, that man, I wish him well, I wish him grass. That's exactly him, yeah. Yeah, like that's that. from a poem called A Removal from Terry Street. Great yeah. poem. That's coming up soon. Um, festivals. I guess it started off with Humber Street Sesh. Some great bands on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got the new, the new stage there. The kind of amphitheatre. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, that was good. And I walked in and it's the first time I'd kind of seen it kind of full. And it was such a thrill. It's a great place, isn't it? For it to be clearly only for that. You know, it's been hollowed out. It's been created this area. It's just there for something to happen. It's got the, the deep behind it and the, the river alongside it. You know? So that, that is, for me, one of the most exciting spaces, full stop. The first um, thing I saw there was um, was with the kids. And there was a guy with all water shooting out of him. He, <laughs> the act, he sort of looked like he didn't realise that water was coming out of different holes and it was kind of getting worse as if he was trying to stop it Um, and uh, it it was only spoiled a little bit by the fact that it was raining a lot but but yeah that was pretty exciting that was the first thing I saw. Freedom Festival is for me what hopefully 2017 and some of the big events will feel like Um, but I think it's the ninth year of Freedom Festival this year and we're so lucky that it's free and we get this sort of standard of international sort of performance that we get there's a a brilliant bit of street theatre where they actually had people planted in the first floor rooms on Queen Street. Okay. And then suddenly like a, a kind of sash window would open up and there'd be like a, a, a naked man who just had, had an affair. Oh, really? And the husband. And so you'd be looking around and it'd just be happening around you. There's no announcement that, oh, this is busy street theatre. How do you know that wasn't just people with no shame <laughs> just there in the well, day? Well, because I knew the acting. Oh, right. Yeah, it just sort of sprang up like the best sort of street theatre out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's some brilliant, as there always is, some Great sort of circus stuff, clowny stuff. Yeah. And that amazing thing called the thing with the projections. Oh, yeah, it. yeah, that was that was amazing. The people scrambling around on the text as it moved Absolutely, around. Absolutely, yeah. So it starts off like a, a normal sort of stage. You know it's yeah. going to go up at some point because there's a massive crane behind it. And they're at a kind of climb up summit in Copenhagen. 
Yeah. And um, as negotiations start to fail, the stage starts to tip. Yeah. And people and props, tables, everything just start yeah. to slide off. Yeah. They look like they're kind of hanging on for day life. And then it goes to a full perpendicular. Yeah. And then they start projecting all different sort of imagery yeah. onto the surface of the stage. And the way they interacted with it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's all looked good. It was so well choreographed that the live stuff was properly reacting to the way it moved on the screen. And yeah. People falling off and tumbling and clambering back on. But what you couldn't see, well, you could just see them when the lights shifted a bit. There were these um, guys dressed in black who were like the counterweights to the actors. Okay. And they were like absolute heroes because whenever <laughs> an actor fell, they'd have to kind of scramble yeah. up. They would do exactly the same thing, but without the, uh, the kudos. Exactly, the, yeah. Without the acclaim. What, what I think is exciting about Freedom is that we've had 10 years of, of these kind of non-standard, sort of slightly left-field mm. performances that younger generations are just getting used to. Mm. Yeah, yeah, people growing up with this probably think this is, this is just normal. Um, which, you know, which is my kids, which is where they're six and four, so, you know, yeah. it's going to be so, a good time. Whereas maybe when we were a bit younger, it'd be Panto and maybe like a summer fair. Yeah, I remember Arville came one year. Oh, well, that's, that's exciting. Yeah, but, you know, it's still pretty far, yeah, few and far between. Uh, the other sort of stunt-type thing that happened this summer, of course, was the uh, Plasters Arms. Plasters Arms, Place of the Angels, yeah. yeah. Um, which which I did see, which, uh, which was good, it, um, filled Hull with feathers for, for several days. And, uh, I thought it was brilliant, and that they, they sort of strung, if you didn't go, they strung these wires between kind of Hull College, yeah. um, the Treasury Building on, on one side, and then they had um, people kind of on the old police station. Yeah. Were you near the Feather Cannons? Near... It was actually in the park, right. in, yeah, in we Queen's were. Gardens itself, but I was kind of quite jealous of people who were, who were over there. Yeah. But, um, I like the bit when the massive... Ghost thing came round. Stay puff George Street. Yeah. From Ghostbusters. It did look like some. That was great, wasn't it? Yeah, just came out from near Sharkies. It just was got great. involved. The, the most exciting thing was at the end when they said, right, you could just play now. Yeah. Um, we're going to leave the music on, we're gonna leave the lights on, yeah. and you can do whatever you want with these feathers. And it was like a kind of an early summer sort of snowball fight. Yeah. And you like that kind of thing. It's like when we saw Hot Brown, hot brown honey. honey. Yeah, you, you were quite happy to hang around at the end when you were given the license to just dance. Well, I think given license to dance, you should always uh, yeah. you should always seek to use that license. Yeah. That was um, brilliant. That, that was a big hit at the Edinburgh Festival. And if you didn't see it, and if you get a chance to see it, you should. It was brilliant. They basically took the cliched depictions and representation of black women in the movies and in literature yeah. and in the media, and they sort of, in a really just glorious way, shoved it back in your face. Yeah, this idea of being dressed as maids... And then they sort of turned it on its head by sort of getting massive breasts and getting a guy out of the audience shoving his face in the breasts repeatedly, <laughs> rhythmically. And someone got lap danced, yeah. which is brilliant. Yeah. And it was, I just looked at some of the guys who were over 50 and just saw, just literally the fact they almost had PTSD when they were walking out of the theatre. <laughs> um, we mentioned Edinburgh. My friends in Middlechild, who okay. a local theatre company, they were up there doing a what's been called gig theatre. So there's there's a band, a singer, right. a DJ in this case, and they followed up a show called Weekend Rockstars, which was a big hit for them at Edinburgh last year, um, with an adaptation of a Richard Millward novel. And this was called Ten Story Love Song, and it's just about the people who live in this block of flats. And they won an award, they won a thing called a Bobby Award. All right. Um, and they deserved it, it was fantastic, it was one of the pleasant venues. Which is a good place to be if you're in Edinburgh. Um, so they're a whole company, are they? Yeah, mostly they graduated from uh, the course at Hull Uni, but they've chosen to kind of make their theatre and, and kind of base themselves in Hull, which just shows, I think, that you don't have to go to that London. I mean, I, I've moved back a few years ago, and I thought, oh, you know, I, I feel sort of out of it and peripheral. Yeah. But I think, on the contrary, it's just 
it's the sort of place now where you can. Well, if you're going to try and live on the cheap and try and make work from scratch and try and be creative, um, you know, off your own bat, then I guess being able to live a lot cheaper than London's got to be good. Most people can't live in London these days. London's always been relatively expensive, but it's been doable. Stuart Lee talked about the fact that when he graduated from um, Oxford in the 80s, yeah. he worked for a publisher during the day, but he still had enough time to go and do his stand-up and to think and write. Yeah. Whereas now you, you've got to do two jobs and you just, you're just you so knackered that you don't have time to sort of go to auditions. You know, you're looking to get a job where you'd be given time to go to auditions or, yeah. or, or kind of go away and do a show or a bit of TV. I just I, heard Alexi Sale talking about this. Right. I mean, I guess he's sort of 10 years older than Stuart Lee, so maybe late 70s. He was at art school in London mm. and he says it was this time when he was basically allowed to spend four years at art school just trying stuff mm. and he ended up you know, being a big cultural figure, mm. uh, Alexi Sale changed the landscapes so or helped create you know, alternative comedy as it is today. But that wouldn't happen now. No. There's no way that anyone could afford to, to, to live there, to, to try that out, to do that, to experiment. And it was a time, Alexi Sale was saying, when for a while they let people like him, like most of us, yeah. through. And it's yeah. not going to happen again. I just think to function in London, I, whether you're kind of pursuing a career in the arts or the entertainment industry, or you're just trying to get an internship, you've got to have money. You just cannot afford to live there. Yeah. It's not for you if you haven't got money. Yeah. And if you've got a bit of money, then you can you can afford to sort of indulge while you find your feet for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, You're allowed choice. That's what it gives you. Well, exactly. Freedom. Yeah. Um, we went to see Spy Monkey. The, oh, yeah. Um, the Complete Deaths. That's right. So Trump. it's a compilation of all, I don't know, 70-odd yeah. deaths of characters on stage in Shakespeare. They weren't counting the deaths that happened off stage like Ophelia. Yeah. Yeah. And they're really on form with this. And just, they get every drop of potential out of all these deaths. Like, uh, there's one battle being had between two of them, um, and they were enacting various deaths on the battlefield in Shakespeare's history plays, hitting each other with long rolls of toilet paper, which made these kind of resonant dong sounds, and then they, they each had two, and it was bom, 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 and they were sort of realised in the middle that it was creating the beginning of Yazoo's Only You. Um, and then others came, others came on with toilet rolls, and then they just played all of Only You for about two minutes. The Amy Johnson Festival, that, that took place over kind of the whole of the summer. I think it might have been the, the anniversary of her death. Didn't she die in mysterious She did, yeah. yeah. It was, I, I think, in the Thames Estuary. Um, in the war? During the war, yeah, right. during the Second World War. And her plane came down, and there were different kind of stories about what happened. Right. Uh, but it was foggy, and I think there was a guy who kind of made a deathbed confession and said that I, he saw her, the wreckage of her plane, or he even saw her been kind of pulled out of the water. So I don't know if it, if it, was, it was a friendly fire thing or, or what. But yeah, there's, there's still absolutely no sort of definite story about how she died. So it could be 65 years, could it, this year, think? It could, yeah, it could be something like that. Well, the Larkin 25, 25 years yeah. after his death, that brilliant festival with the toads, and they did a similar thing with moths because she flew a gypsy. Oh moth. yeah, that's right. They're everywhere. My kids are seeing them. Yeah. Um, these beautifully designed, decorated moths. That reminds me. There's um, an escape room that's uh, that's opening in Hull, which is Amy Johnson themed. Right. Um, so you can go and you have an hour to get out. And so what happens? You, you go to yeah. So there's like three or four or I don't know however many five of you or whatever. Uh, you're a team. You're told. I've done a couple of these. You're told that you have an hour to get out. You're in the room. The door's locked. 
go. So then you all raid the corners and the um, the drawers and the shelves, and you find various keys and clues, and they they lead you to other things, and then you find you can unlock these, and you've got to do, do loads of puzzles. Right. But this one apparently is Amy Johnson. That's themed. a brilliant idea. It's going to run for City Culture Year. Um, I went to the um, there's a new theatre in Beverly, relatively new. It's been going a couple of years now, called the East Riding Theatre. It's a, just a new permanent space, and they've converted this, this old church hall. And I've seen a couple of things there. I saw most recently a production of Hamlet. It's quite a lavish, kind of traditional sort of style production. It suited the theatre really well. It's got this gothic kind of feel about it. And I read today Mark Pickering is coming back to do, you know, Richard Bajet's first yeah. play. American Justice. It no, was originally called. Uh, yeah, it's had different names, hasn't it? I think it was originally called. As We Forgive Them. As We Forgive Them. It was originally called. I saw that at Fruit. I think it was absolutely brilliant. And Richard had a lot of success with that. Yeah, it's a two-hander. Uh, not to give it away, it's about, um, uh, it's, it's also in a prison cell and there's uh, a guy who's come in as a teacher to teach this, uh, this lifer, this, uh, this murderer who's doing you know, a life sentence. He's going to teach him English, getting through his high school he's in America, getting through his high school diploma and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the teacher is actually the father of his murder victim and you know, that's where it, you know, it takes off from there. So this production, I think it's a new production. Andy Pearson is going to direct it um, from Ensemble Fifty Two, and Matt Pickering is going to play the the inmate, the, yeah. the prisoner. Matt Pickering, a, a Boardwalk Empire, played the young, yeah. we, young we, king, we, the young Steve Buscemi, and it's Vince Regan who is a sort of big Hollywood star himself. So I think yeah, he's he's playing the the, the second character. So. Was Vince Regan in Steady Rain that they did? There? Yes. Yeah, that was very good. Yeah. He's writing for you. So that's so, a two hander. Mm. It should be a brilliant production. Yeah. Another sort of mini festival that happened um, from the guys who bring you Humble Mouth. Russ Litton is the host of, mm-hmm. and and Russ um, talks to a lot of writers at the the James Reckitt Library, the old reference library, the whole Central Library. Yeah, and uh, he gets some brilliant novelists and poets, and he's a writer himself. He's, yeah, I've read two of his books. Very he, good. He's a brilliant writer. I must read his other one, Kingdom. I've read Swear Down and uh, the one set. Uh, scream, scream if you want to go faster, yeah. which is set. This week, which is Hull Fair Week. Hull Fair Week, yeah. yeah. But um, they staged uh, a series of talks called Lyrical, uh, and you went to the one with Jason Williamson from Sleaford uh, Mods, Mods yeah. who I love Sleaford Mods. I think they're, you know, you talk about a voice of a generation, a voice of an era. Yeah. They sort of have become that voice for a lot of people. How would you describe them? Like yeah, that? it's kind of angry, doesn't always rhyme, kind of um, poetry, yeah, on top of, yeah, it's kind of post-punk, isn't it? And how, how was the chat? Because I missed that. Yeah, no, he was good. He's, he's an interesting guy, sort of like, sort of really deeply sort of honest. And uh, it was good to see him, you know, Russ talk to him. Yeah. Because, you know, they got on really well. Uh, really comfortable in his own skin and sort of not kissing ass or trying to, you know, big anybody else up. He wasn't interested in trying to um, ingratiate himself to anybody. And I imagine Russ, it's not some kind of like, you know, hourly literary dude asking dry questions. Russ is quite a brute. If, if you know Russ Lytton, he just looks like a proper bloke, and I imagine he responded quite well to being interviewed by somebody like that. Yeah, I mean that's it. That they're both kind of, you get a sense they're both angry about stuff as well. You yeah. know what I mean? Which which I think made it quite interesting. But yeah, he said he's going to virtually promise to come to the Adelphi at some point soon. That'd be massively exciting. It certainly would, Matt. It certainly would. But now here's the interview with Dr. Rob Robinson of the University of Hull. I've seen Rob talk history on TV and listen to him on the radio many times. He's really fascinating and he's passionate about raising awareness of this area's long, unique and enthralling connection to the sea. 
I really enjoyed listening to him, and I hope you will too. I just want to welcome to the podcast Dr. Rob Robinson from the University of Hull, historian. Um, quite appropriately, we are in uh, we're by Princess Dock, Princess Key, right in the old town, and um, we're going to talk about history because Rob's a historian. So that's that done. Uh, let's continue. That's good, yeah. We're yeah. drinking San Pellegrino Limonade. Indeed, we've been very uh, sort of refined. It feels quite continental. We're in a place called Thurlian Co, which is it's an old warehouse, I think, Rob, isn't it? I think it is. It's we're backing onto the onto the docks. We're very mm. close to where the town walls would have been mm. at one time. Uh, we're right on the the arch of the uh, of Princess Dock. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're 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 in the old town, good and proper. So there would have been a wall. This would have been right on the limit of the wall. There would have been a wall not very far from here, just Actually, a few yards it, it, uh, to our west. Right. Uh, beyond that was, uh, was was the open countryside, but of was course it? that's how towns were in those days. Yeah, and, and um, Hull was, it was, was it 1299, Edward I, when he kind of said, right, this will be a, a king's town. Yeah, was it, was but it, it was older than that. Yeah. Uh, Hull had been founded quite a good bit before that by mm. the monks of, uh, of Mews Abbey mm. uh, and really if you think about it the, one of the big staples of Britain in those days was the export of wool right. I mean for centuries the Lord Chancellor in the House of Lords sat at the wool sack because it was a, yeah, a symbol yeah. of England's trade and, and Hull was one of the places that exported wool to the low countries and did that so come from, from Leeds? It came from, no in those days it came from all over the north of England to this right. day you'll see the ruins of, uh, of monasteries right. among many of these monasteries particularly Cistercian ones had big sheep runs they yeah. collected sheep uh, uh, you know they, they, they cut the wool off and they exported the wool and it came down the river right. and was re-exported because Hull was a port of transshipment one of the few places on the area yeah, yeah. Uh, they did that they also exported lead from the city oh, right. from the town yeah. uh, and if you go to many of the, the sort of public buildings of north Europe, right. you, they're probably chances are that a lot of them have got lead that was shipped through Hull. Right. Um, tell us about the Hanseatic League. What, what was it exactly? Well, a couple of things. People tend to celebrate the Hanseatic League because of the links, uh, if you like, between a lot of northern cities. Right. But Hull was always on the outside with this. Right. Uh, if you were if you were a local around here, you didn't really like it. It was one of these manifestations of sort of corporate sclerosis right. that clap up every so often yeah. uh, and whole fight to be on the outside of it. And what the Hanseatic League was, was really a collection of North German towns, that's right. it started, that really came to control the trade of the right. Baltic and into the Atlantic and further afield. Yeah. Uh, and they tended to sort of do it in the interests of their towns uh, more than anywhere else. Right. Uh, and their merchants had a big control of this thing. People in Hull uh, tended to rebel against this, trying to find ways around it. Right. And uh, we dealt directly with Iceland when we weren't supposed to. We were supposed to go to Bergen. In later years, when it started to decline, we were back into the Baltic, establishing other places where they, uh, they you know, where they, where they, they couldn't affect our trade, so to speak. So, from a Hull point of view, yes, it's an example of this this trade with Northern Europe in one sense, yeah. but it's also a, a bit of a stifler because Hull wants to do it its own way. Right. And that's the sort of thing about Hull throughout its history. It always likes to do it its own it's way. It's true, there, there is a common theme, and, and certainly now with, with Brexit, um, that, that sort of resonates now, the fact that there's this kind of economic union that we want to sort of uh, control on our own terms. Yes. Um, and it, it was happening, you know, centuries ago. Um, but, but the thing with, with Hull, you know, it'd be white phone boxes, uh, KCOM as opposed to BT. Yeah. The fact that we, we are on this peninsula and, and cut off, this, this has been a kind of theme 
throughout throughout the centuries. That's right. I don't say we are cut off because for me the sea was the first World Wide Web. Yeah. And people and ships from this port uh, went out to do their business in great waters from the very beginning of the town. So it, when people say, you know, you, you, it's the end of the line, I think those people have got a very sort of inland-centric, if that be the yeah, centric yeah. view of the world. Whereas to a lot of people from Hull, I, I was brought up in a seafaring family, you've got uh, it, it, people who were involved in the same way. We used to see these people go off to different parts of the world, and, and it wasn't that Hull was the place that was the end of the world, it was the link to all these other places. Yeah. It was much more parochial to live in an inland town than it was in Hull. Yeah. These sort of places that say, oh, well, you know, you're going to the end of the world. No, we're not. Yeah. We're starting off on embarking on the rest of the world. I just want to go back to where it started for you. Um, you were brought up uh, in the Hesel Road area of West Hull. I, I was from a Hesel Road family. I was largely brought up in Hesel. I lived for the first nearly three years of my life in a Nissen hut. Right. Like a lot of people from Essel of my generation right, right. did because there were enough houses. It yeah, was yeah. A, you know, it's a good few years after the war, but there was still a big housing shortage. Yeah. And, and uh, a large number of people were housed in, in what had been a prisoner of war camp and before that an army camp. And, and that's where I spent the first three years of my life. Then lived in a council estate in Hesel, hmm. and I grew up that way. But my family on both sides went to sea and have gone to sea for generations. Hmm. So for me, there was always that interest in, in the sea and with all things uh, seaworthy in a sense. Sure. Um, were, they, were they fishing or were they merchant navy or royal navy? Both. Right. Uh, they, were, they were, well, three in a sense. Most of them, they were, they were fishing and what they called big boats. Right. Which of course, if you're honest, a big boat is uh, means the merchant navy. Right. So you say, oh, they were on big boats. Uh, so a lot of them, some of them in the royal navy for spells, uh, but largely fishing and, uh, and the mercantile marine. What sparked your love for sort of things of the past, for history, and when did you decide to make it the thing you were going to do for your, for your career? That's a really interesting thing. I, I mean, I, I was absolutely useless at school. Right. I, I left school, as I said, with a couple of CSE grade fours. I, I, I worked in various things, warehousing, electrical supply, various things for several years. And it took me, a, nobody from our house and family had been to university, it took me several years. Uh, uh, to decide, yeah, I might, I might be quite good at this, and, and it came up from a very, uh, sorry, rational uh, view, I suppose, when you look back on it. I was good at quizzes, mm. always good at a sort of memory things like that. So I thought must be clever, yeah. not not realising that was just one direction, but it was enough to get me started. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, I took my O levels at night class, went and did a one year A level course, and then went on to university from there. Right. Um, and I, I always had the passion and the love for history, and that was really ignited by my grandfather. Mm -hmm. uh, and my grandfather, when I was a young child, would take me round the old town. He worked in the old town. He worked for the Siemens Union in the old town. And he used to show me things. And it was still just a working port, the old docks in those days round here. Mm. Uh, and I got an interest in it, and he told me these stories of the old town. And he been told these stories by his grandfather and my grandfather was born in 1892 and his grandfather had been born in 1833 wow. so you know there were things but as an academic historian I parked all that yeah. and it was only many years later uh, I went to uh, a presentation and for the life of me I cannot remember which particular presentation and, 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 and initiative it was but it was basically to do with pioneering Hull and I remember going and listening to somebody it was that typical late 90s uh, presentation, somebody very slick, suit, from out of town, mm -hmm. so they didn't have that relationship with the area, I thought, and they talked about pioneering Hull, and the sea got two mentions, and I came away and I thought, that is absolutely 
absolutely ridiculous. And I thought, on the river, reflecting on it, I thought, well, you've only got yourself to blame. You're a maritime historian. So, whereas I'd gone down a very academic approach, you know, papers, etc., I decided to revisit my grandfather's stories. Right. And I looked into them, and somewhere, Spurious, but a lot of them had a, had, had a lot of truth in them. And when yeah. you research, when you applied academic rigor to them, more interesting, more detail came out. And I started doing presentations. And when you got to that stage, people say, "Oh, about sunset," and, and and it built up the picture like that. So for me, one of my big passions was about resurrecting our knowledge of other things. Mm. Because if you went back to the early part of this new century, what we would have seen was we did. If you looked at his whole history, you'll get Wilberforce, which was done very well. Mm -hmm. But but you might get a little bit of, of Amy Johnson. You might you might get a little bit Andrew Marvel. Sure. Uh, and if you're lucky, you get some Philip Larkin. And that was it. Yeah. And that was it. And yet there were these wonderful stories of people, you know, from across the world, mm. who'd who'd been impacted from Hull. Many of them who come from Hull. Scratch the surface of many tales of the sea, and you'll come across Hull people, Hull ships all sorts of stories um, and, and that's one of the things go to New York mm. go to the, 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 the oldest uh, tunnel railway tunnel between you know, the island and the mainland is uh, under the Hudson uh, it, it was built by a bloke from Hull wow. because <laughs> they, you know, that, that's just typical of the sort of stories you got go, go to New Zealand uh, and, and the first country in the world to give women the vote the man who campaigned and pushed that through it was from Hull. Wow. Yeah, go to Vancouver. The man who founded Vancouver, who stands on a barrel of whiskey, Gassy Jack Dayton's from Hull. Go, uh, go, go to America, go to the Smithsonian and see one of the oldest two steam locomotives in North America. Uh, yeah. The man who helped assemble those two locomotives was from Hull. Right. Yeah, so you, you, wherever you go, there are these stories of people and ships, and they got forgotten, they mm. got dropped off. And one of the things I've tried to do, I suppose, is resurrect this, just to show how people from this city have ploughed their individual course and made their mark in all sorts of ways across the world. Um, how well do you think we know our own history in Hull? Not as well as we could do. Yeah. I, 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 that's one of my passions. Uh, so I, I, I'm very much into promoting and doing that. And one of the reasons I do these open-top bus lectures around the town mm. is, well, we'll drive around a section of the town and I'll say, did you know this place? Did you know that? I think we've got a fascinating history, and yeah. the great thing is that there's there's lots of unturned stones, yeah. um, and you've, you've kind of uh, mentioned a few of them. What are, what are the sort of what's the great untold story of, of Hull? My favourite character above all is a man called William Harmon, uh, and I think I've mentioned to you very briefly a little bit of Harmon's exploits. He yeah. was born, or certainly baptised in Drypool, just across the river here. Yeah. Uh, he 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 was an iron man. He grew up uh, as an iron master. He left Hull at a very, well, when he came out of his town, about 21, 22, he went to work for another English ironmaster iron who'd set up an ironworks just outside of Paris. And he helped build some of the first steamships that the, uh, the, uh, the French had. The French weren't anything like as good at making iron as we were. And, uh, uh, and some of the steamships he helped construct had been painted by Turner in that period of the same. Right, right. He, he then, after several years there, his oh, girlfriend from Hull follows him out. He marries her and has a child out there. He then returns to Hull, spends a while back in Hull, 
uh, has another child. And the next thing you find of him, he, he's based at the, uh, the West Point foundry in New York State. Right. And he's helping assemble the first two steam locomotives to go to North America. Oh. He does that for several years. He helps build the next half dozen steam locomotives. He helps develop what they call a flanged rail. Look at any railway line today and you'll see that shape. He, oh, right. He helps make... Like the hourglass sort Yeah, that's right. He yeah. helps make the castings for that. He, he didn't come up with the idea, but he, he brings it into a, a form that can be used. He then gets itchy, itchy feet again, and he leaves, and he, he, he joins the, uh, he, he heads inland in America, and he heads to this woebegone uh, community uh, on, on Lake Michigan, mm. dozen log cabins, the Indians, teepees are there, it's just the end of the Black Hawk Indian War, muddy roads, they're going to establish a port there. Right. And he's going to become what they call the shipsmith. He's going to make the metal parts for the shipbuilding industry. They're going to settle there. Mm. And his woebegone place is called Chicago. Right. And he spends the next 20 of his years of his life in this area of Chicago. He's a very human man. He struggles with alcohol. He has to leave the town for a number of months at one stage to get away from hard drinking and wild association, as he puts it. Yeah. Which is, you know, you get a picture of that. Uh, his wife eventually dies. He marries another woman from Hull mm. uh, and his family have grown up and he gets itchy feet again and this time he's about this time in his 50s and he joins the Oregon Trail uh, he's six months and ten days with his new uh, wife and her young family on the Oregon Trail he, he, he finally arrives at the Indians steal his horses uh, the, the, the half his cattle that are pulling the wagons die at first but he arrives at the Dalles in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in Oregon um, and he, he settles on the Columbia River and he helps build um, uh, steamships for the uh, Oregon Steam Navigation Company. He builds the metal parts for them, including one ship called the Idaho, which the state of Idaho is said to be named after. <laughs> Do you like that? That's great. <laughs> Captain Bugwash. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. But, yeah, and... and and he spends the rest of his life there. But he's always very proud of coming from Hull. And on his gravestone over there, it says from Hull. To me, that's an epic story. If you think about America, how is America opened up? It's opened up by the steam train and by the, the, the river uh, uh, paddler. Absolutely. And that's what he's involved in doing. And his story is a story both of Hull and of the opening up of America. And for me, he's a passionate... I'd love to see a film done of him, because I just think he's such... A remarkable character. It sounds fascinating. You know, we've seen uh, films like uh, There Will Be Blood and Oil Prospectors, Daniel Day Lewis yeah. that film. But that 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 seems ready made for a film. That was it, just. There seems to be a, a thing that's about whole. We are a pole. We, we face the sea, yeah. and we face inland. We face down towards Manchester and Leeds, and the, the birth of the Industrial Revolution, and round the corner down to London. Yeah. Do you think Hull is the sort? Of, is it, a lot of people from Hull go away to make the successes? Yeah. Do you, think it's a, do you think it's a city that pushes you away and then welcomes you back I, I think, at some point later? I think because it's part of this World Wide Web, it, it, the people spread out. Mm. And some people come back and other people come here and are imbued by the spirit. But you've got, yeah, you've got that whole range of people who do this in all sorts of different ways and sort of different parts. Well, I mean, it's interesting to think we just talked a bit about the Wilson Line. Mm. All the Wilson Line ships were built by... Um, by, by, by Earls, which were on the river not very far from here, Earls Shipyard. Yeah. And they were, they were real um, sort of cutting edge in the development of the steamship. Mm. But uh, you can still see one of their steamships. It's one of the last ones in the world. And it sails, well, it probably doesn't sail at the moment, at 12,000 feet above sea level. 240-foot steamship. And you might say, that's ridiculous. How can it sail at 12,200 feet above sea level? 
Well, it's the Atlanta, and it's one of two ships, the Inca and Atlanta, that were built by the Earl Steamship Company. They were pin-built, put together on the banks of the River Humber, taken to bits, put in boxes, right. shipped across the Atlantic, right, through the, through the uh, uh, Panama Canal, and then taken up the sides of the Andes to Lake Titicaca, which is the highest navigable waterway in the world. And in the case of the Atlanta, which was the last one built in the 1930s, a bloke from Twin Dykes Road it all, right. uh, uh, got a lot of locals from the area, trained them up and put the ship together. The original the flat pack. Yeah, the original flat pack. <laughs> you know, uh, all the parts were marked before they took it apart right. and put it in the... And he, he built, and that ship is still, the Atlanta is still on Lake Titicaca to this day. That's amazing. Uh, and, and that's the sort of, sort of story I, I, I particularly, and it took that. Another great one for me would be Henry Lewis Hulbert. Uh, and we're just coming up to the time when we're probably going to do a bit of publicity about his uh, subject. Henry Lewis Hulbert is the most capped, uh, sorry, I think he is the most decorated US Marine of the First World War. He got everything, right? Uh, and when he died in the last month of the war, uh, after he died, his body was disinterred and reburied in Arlington State Cemetery. Uh, they later named the USS Hulbert after him. and. The American Marines still compete each year for the Hulbert Award for Leadership, right? Uh, all American hero, except he's from Spring Street, you know. <laughs> he was born down Spring Street, or certainly brought up down Spring Street, you know, and Arlington Square, which is just off Beverly Road. He'd gone off um, to become um, a, a colonial official, this is the 1880s, in the Strait Settlements, Malaysia as we know it today. He'd married the daughter of a colonial official, but then, it's always a book with the whole story, but then he had an affair. With his, sister, with his wife's sister. It became public knowledge, great disgrace. Uh, she was uh, sent from the uh, colony in disgrace and he couldn't make up the next bit. The ship on the way home was wrecked mm. off the coast of Aden. She lost her life. He, he left the, the, the colony in sort of disgrace, led a sort of Joseph Conrad uh, sort of existence across the Pacific, ended up in the Klondike uh, gold rush and then drifted down to San Francisco where he joined the Marines. Uh, in 1901, uh, and he fought in all the big marine campaigns between then and you know the, the end of the First World War. Henry Lewis Hulbert, all American era from all. That's amazing. Yeah. Just to finish that, are there any stories in Hull's past something we should we should be less proud of? I, one really remarkable things I think is the consistency throughout the centuries of the way that Hull has supported liberty. You get King Billy's statue, yeah. right? and, and King Billy's statue is a really good manifestation of that because, of course, uh, King William, it says on it, to our great deliverer, well, and you can look at it from two perspectives. One, you can say it's bigotry because he delivered us from a Catholic threat, yeah. but equally, he's the man who delivered us from what they considered to be uh, over-imposing kings, mm -hmm. you know, who wanted to govern on their own, because when William and Mary took the throne, uh, they established the constitutional monarchy that we have today. But uh, if you want one on the other side, I mean, the best one, I suppose, or the most controversial figure, that uh, would be Zachariah Pearson of Pearson right. Park. Because Zachariah Pearson, mayor of Hull, makes a lot of money, man on the rise very quickly with a, with a partner who was more reserved but probably kept him in control. He then breaks with his partner. He then gets involved with the banking firm of Over and Gurney, who, um, who encouraged him to buy these ships off a Greek ship owner. To make a quick recap on them, the, the American war has just started, mm -hmm. the American uh, Civil War, yep. and, um, and of course he starts some blockade running into the south, 
Right. Uh, he, he was absolute failure at this. All his, virtually all his ships, he loses virtually. He goes bankrupt in a spectacular way. He's already given the town, however, Pearson Park. Yeah. Uh, he's buried in a very obscure grave uh, in, um, in in the cemetery at Spring Bank. Uh, and a very controversial figure. He lived the rest of his life in a house in the park that he'd created. What spot in this city do you feel the weight of history most? What, resonate, what place resonates most for you? Probably the River Hull. Right. Probably walking along the edge of the River Hull. Because when you walk along there, you see lots of ruined buildings, etc. And they're out Pompeii. I mean, really, and people laugh at me when I say that, but they really are. I mean, a lot of those buildings down there, they're, 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 they're of a, an industrial maritime era, mm. uh, and we've forgotten about them. And our track record in Hull is, if, you know, if you look at bombed mm. uh, by, you know, in, in either World War, then we pull them down. Yeah. And that's the utterly ridiculous thing to do. I've just spent quite a bit of time in Eastern Europe, in most places, and I've seen the way that people have resurrected their towns by mm. uh, recreating the buildings that were devastated in the war. Mm. We've actually got a reasonable structure of buildings left, despite the blips, despite the planners of the 60s and 70s. Mm. And we just shouldn't pull them down. The bottom line, certainly for many of our places, corporate and you develop and you build what is unique because it's dead easy to pull something down that is quite unique and quite the centre of town and build something that is exactly the same as every other town's got yeah why do it i don't know i agree with you completely i, I think um in terms of the, the rank mill which was actually a lot younger than i thought it was the 50s wasn't yeah. it yeah um what they did with the baltic in, in gateshead sorry not yeah. newcastle which is which was designed by Gelder and Kitchen of High Street in Hull. There you go, I didn't realise that, that's fantastic. Um, they, they tend to look after it a bit more, um, maybe against the wishes of kind of town planners, you want to yeah. pull stuff down, stick a kind of um, a glass and steel structure up yeah. there, and sort of say, this, this is the, the way ahead. We have got so much left in the old town that is so unusual and unique, mm. and we need to keep that, we need to make the most of it, and there needs to be a certain standard of quality of building that's going in alongside of it. Yeah. And that's got to be the other aspect of it. You know, we shouldn't have any, any qualms about that, uh, about saying that if you don't want to do anything with it now, then don't do anything, but don't let it fall down. How, how is our history formed our kind of civic personality and our, our identity? It's quite a kind of broad question, that book. Uh, well, I, th I, I think we're, in, in one sense, a very insular place in that we, you know, we're not close to another city or town, and that, that makes us unique in that sense. We're not the end of the land. As I said, we've got connections everywhere. Mm. But we're very much our own place. You know, great skies, flat lands, uh, a big, broad Brownwood River, uh, with a small river coming into it. The town's grown up around there. And that insularity, that way of doing it in our own way, I think, has bred very much into the, the people who've been born here and the people who've come here who've been, had that infused into them. It, it, it's a, a place that, that is very unique in, in all sorts of ways. And I'm very keen on bringing out that nature, that uniqueness of the place itself. Uh, I don't want to see it be a vessel for other people's ideas. Mm -hmm. I want to see the ideas grow out of this city yeah. and this town. Uh, and that's what I think is really important. It does feel like the sort of place where you can come back to to, to do business. I, I know myself, um, my friend Tom, who's a playwright, yeah. we, we've moved back, having sort of lived in London and various other yeah. places. Because it was always the kind of received wisdom that you had to be there. And it, it still is for a lot of people. But I, I love the place. I know a lot yeah. of people go and they don't come back. and. 
you know, maybe they have a fond memory of it, but yeah. they, they don't want to kind of make their, they don't want to do their business here, so to speak. Yeah. But it just does feel like the sort of place where people are moving to, even if they were never originally from here. We're going inexorably towards 2017. Um, we're starting to, I think we're starting to look at ourselves yeah. in, a, in a less defensive and more celebratory way. It, it seems like a pivot point this 2017. Yeah. I think there's been a renaissance going on in Hull for a few years now. Culturally, uh, we're looking at Siemens and Dong Energy. Yeah. It's been an announcement today, hopefully, they're going to start to build on the Dogger Bank. Um, it just does seem a sort of place where, where you can sort of stay, where you can go to school here, you can go to university here, you can stay and you can make it a, a life and a career here. Yeah, I mean, look at the East Riding area around. I mean, it really is one of the unspoken bits of, uh, of England. Mm. Uh, and, and you've got the city at the centre of it. And there really is a lot that can go on and develop it. And there is a lot going on. And, and yeah, that's been, I like to think, I've played a small part in pushing this agenda because I am keen that people are proud of the place that they come from and how unique and, 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 and uh, different it is and um, what, what that means for the city's unique history. Mm. And that's the thing that, for me, we should always press. Uh, that's why I get a bit frustrated if people wonder, oh, we'll do the Titanic because there were three or four people from London. Mm. Forget the Titanic. Yes, great story and there were people from London, but there are so many unique stories that relate to the place itself mm. that you can make so much of throughout the ages right right from the beginning well, we talk about the, t- the titanic the, another famous ship the bounty wasn't called the bounty at that point but that was built in a shipyard in hull is that true it was built at blades house where i'm based or right. very close to that it was built at the orphan yard but people put that emphasis on, emphasis on the bounty right at the same time as they're building the bounty they were building in the adjacent shipyard the alexander right alexander was part of the first fleet to, uh, to Australia. Right. It was the largest of the, uh, the ships, and it, it even had a great story. Even had three whole convicts on board. One of them was called Robinson. That's <laughs> another story. But um, so you, you, they got that close by. They built um, they built the um, uh, uh, they, they built the Tramby in later years, which was uh, one of the first ships to sail to an open up Western Australia. Uh, they also built um, the HMS Rose. You'll have seen HMS Rose if you've ever been to San Diego Maritime Museum because the Americans built a replica of not only the Bounty, which was built at Blades, mm. Blades House, but also of the Rose, which was built at Blades House. And you might say, why did they build a replica of that? It features in Master and Commander right. as HMS Surprise. Why did they build a replica? Well, this whole built ship in the American War of Independence wrought havoc on the rebels. Mm. Right? At one stage, it sailed, into, uh, it sailed uh, into New York and bombarded not only New York, but Greenwich Village and was part of the pivotal movement that drove General Washington out of New York. Uh, and it said at one stage, it, uh, I thought it was a, I'm not saying it was a whole person, but it, I thought it was a very, uh, it, it sailed up the East River and as it was going past their heavily, most heavily de- uh, defended part, apparently one of the crew was up the up the vast moaned at the defences. <laughs> but um, Americans, it also had a lot to do with the defence of Charleston later on from from uh, incoming foreign ships. But again, a very good example of the ships that were were built uh, in this area. And again, we often we talk about the decline of the fishing industry. Mm-hmm. Yes, it did decline quite badly, and there was a great disruption. But we also the firms that were left were quite adaptable. Uh, Mars were one of those firms that got involved in ocean scanning because, of course, why did we lose the fishing industry? Because of the exclusive economic zones coming in, mm-hmm. 200 mile limits off different countries. What did that mean? Well, the countries that had these 200 mile zones needed to know what was on the bottom. 
So Mars and one or two other firms developed means of scanning the bottom using trawlers, trawling crews, etc. And the Farnella, out of Hull, mm -hmm. uh, is said to have, um, uh, said to have uh, mapped uh, America's final frontier. It mm -hmm. did all three American exclusive economic zones. Right. And according to John uh, Davis, who, who, who used to do the PR for, um, for Mars, mm -hmm. he reckons there's a picture of the Farnella uh, in, the, uh, in the White House. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, which, which is uh, uh, because of its job in, in, in charting America's final frontiers. Mm. So I think that's again that was in the uh, in the eighties. Again, a very whole uh, whole story, really. The side of thing, do we make a lot of it? Do we? Act? One thing that came out of the, the, the film uh, that was made by uh, Nova Studios is the kind of the, the sort of three or four rules of Hull. The, f the fact that you, you don't stick your head above the parapet. You don't kind of um, squawk on about about your achievements, you yeah. just kind of get on this kind of humbleness, which I think is, is both to be kind of lauded, but also has kind of maybe held us back. Yeah, yeah I agree with you. We don't really do our own sales very well. No, we've been very bad at doing that, and, uh, uh, and, and, and it does annoy me, uh, both the inward you know, perception of it, but also, of course, the fact that you know we've had so many knockers from outside, I always forget his name, what do they call that? Careful language. So Phil, I can yeah, yeah, Phil um, who does the property program. Do you know oh, what yeah, I did about? Yeah. I thought that was absolutely mm. appalling. Mm. Yeah, you know, you know, this is, you know, somebody from a typical sort of thing from the home counties. Yeah, yeah. smoke. This is what I do. You, you'd be on the front line and have eighty percent of your buildings damaged in, the, in the Second World War, and come back and see where you deal with that. You, where's the real money meant? Not in, you know, in, in, in housing stock like that, but in the in the sweat and blood of a place like this. I've got a very good friend of mine. Um, Ian Priestman, who, who, who works for a college in Oregon now, he used to, he used to be a colleague, he with me. He said, and I'm driving down the Pacific Highways in California, he said, I nearly crashed in the car. He said, on the radio, there was this voice from Easton. He still I could pick it up straight away. And he said, uh, you know, and he said, it, it was, um, it turned out to be Professor Keith Devlin. And Professor Keith Bedroom was born on, um, uh, what do you call it, Ceylon Street off Eden Road, right? Yeah. Uh, 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 and he's now Professor of Maths at Stanford, University of Stanford. He's known in America as, and California as the Maths Guy because he does all the radio and TV stuff. That programme, cult programme, number 3RS, he, yeah. does, he does the maths for that programme. Right. He's in, and he still speaks with a broad <laughs> accent. I, I'm fascinated by the whole accent. Yeah, and, I, 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 and, and where it comes uh, from. And, and things like unusual words like bowl. Like yeah. bowl in the pram, you know, and that's really a French word, isn't it? You know, bowl, you know, something like Yeah, it's the game, yeah, B O U L E S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, is, that is fascinating. Yeah. Where? I mean, my dad, my dad, I would do it once, you know, like, like he had, he said, I, you know, I was always, I had two brothers that were always dead adept at doing things, I was used to, he said, the man who made you could plat sawdust. And it was always <laughs> that sort of phrase, you know, that I yeah. always loved, you know. Well, that's it, my, my granddad, um, he was in, he was a merchant naveman, we, we touched yeah. upon it, he, he worked for Elements uh, Wilson yeah. Line. And I used to make him a cup of tea and he'd say, what's that? He says, how long do you leave that bag in for? I said, oh, I don't know, Granddaddy. Like, long enough, he goes, oh, you can spear a gnat at 20 fathoms. <laughs> and, you know, that, that was, I don't know where that came from, maybe two or three generations. Yeah, maybe yeah, his, his father right, said that to yeah. him, but that's, that's a seafaring yeah, that's um, right. metaphor and yeah. put down, I guess. I'm hoping to maybe look on an, in another uh, episode into where the whole, the, the kind of, the development, the evolution of the whole accent. But well, there must be a bit like, I think well, there's always Irish in yeah, it. But there's also probably quite a bit of Devonian in it. Really? It, yeah, because there were about 1,000 people from Devon living in Hull. Because with the, the coming up of the, uh, 
of the of the of the trawlers. Right. So I think that infused into the accident to a degree. Yes. But the thing I'm I'm concerned about. We've, we've become aware now of the whole accident. Yeah. But the one that's getting all the emphasis is the Easter accident. Uh, right. The, uh, you know, not the Western accent. Mm. And I've oh, got to watch that. You know, I was saying when people, when you do it, make sure you've got the difference between the two. You it's know. a very subtle difference. It's I think very subtle, but to anybody from all you, you, well, you know, most people will you. I think the, one of the words that, that differentiates is like, is how we, I think Westall's far. Yeah. And they're far. Uh, um, that's what uh, one sort of difference. And it's uh, a much thicker yeah, accent right. that size. We've talked about the kind of the, the sort of renaissance that's happening in the whole certainly city of culture. Yeah. Feels like the pivot point for that. And um, I think we're all, I'm looking forward to, to 2017. Um, there's the Roots and Roots section of that festival, yeah, yeah. The, the seasons, that's going to look at, at Hull's history, hopefully we'll, we'll bring to life for people young and old who yeah. just who are not familiar. And, and it's just going to kind of completely um, ignite, hopefully, a, a passion yeah. for history like you've got. Um, and I think it's very important. I think it roots you when you know your history. I, I think, think it, it very much roots. It's yeah. like an umbilical link through the ages to, to the past. And it's great. Okay, and one of the great things about all this is because not only do you do it locally, you can go to a place in the world and say, well, do you know this? If you, even a very few places in the world you can not go to and, and not come up with somebody from around here who's been involved in one way or another. There just aren't. Mm. You know, there, just, there are just so many different stories in that one. And that's what I like about it. How do you think our, our past it's going to shape our future. You know, we, we don't know what's going to happen, sort of post Brexit. But we seem to we're a city that we, we've yeah. established that we're a city that we adapt. How is post twenty seventeen Hull going to look? Do you think? I think it's going. To, I like to think it's going to look much more outwardly. Uh, uh, again, I mean, the, the, realize it's looking outwardly because I think the city's always looked outwardly. I like to think it will be people will be much more proud and assertive of themselves. Mm-hmm. They'll realize their uniqueness and the fact that they've got a, an awful lot. Uh, this city has an awful lot to offer and does a lot uh, and I think they'll be some of the main things and I'd like to think that it, it's much more a city that respects the buildings and the background that it's got uh, and makes the most of that in, uh, across the world you know, globally because mm-hmm. we've got some great stories we've got some great people in the town and we've got a great atmosphere and we're still very much a unique city So the final question I was going to ask was uh, had you not become a historian what, was there anything else that you were thinking uh, of being? Oh, Gee, I, 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 I don't know. I, 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 I think I would. I think I'd like to have been a performer of some, somewhere or that. Uh, I think that's something that came out with me later in life, really. Yeah. Uh, so for me, doing something like that, but communicating, I think, would always be something I'd want to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, my father and my brothers would tell me the last thing you want to give you doing is anything mechanical or practical. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be the, something I would probably have liked to have done. But I've really enjoyed being a historian. I love the the detective work of it, the, 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 the taking our massive information and collating it down. Uh, to something that's you know you, you can hand in, handle that you can you can communicate to different audiences. There's a world of difference between putting a piece together for you know an academic uh, you know one of the learned journals mm-hmm. and, and doing it for the public. Well, there isn't, there isn't, mm-hmm. because the same themes and truths are there. You've just got to present them in a different way. Now, Rob and I chatted for about an hour, and I had to cut loads out of that just for the sake of time, but it was all really, really good stuff, so if you want to hear the rest of it, I'll put it up on the SoundCloud page so you can do that. I'll also tweet some links at Podcast Hull, so if you'd like to find out more about Rob and his work, his books, and his current projects, you can do that too. Hull will write a major new chapter of its history in 2017, or 17, if you want to sound like one of the City of Culture team. 
The final countdown to our year as UK City of Culture has begun, and we now know what the first season's programme has in store. I met up with Michelle D, writer, critic, cultural stethoscope, and 2017 volunteer, and we had a look at the menu to see what we thought of the starters. We're in the Minerva, which is one of the best pubs in the city, um, which looks out to the Humber, and you can see uh, the mouth of the River Hall, and you can see the, um, the marina. It's, it's a fantastic spot. And on the walls, we've got some brilliant black and white pictures from the last sort of century and maybe longer um, of the pier and this sort of whole area. It's, it's like a little museum. So, uh, Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, um, thank you very much. It just struck me we're next to the smallest snug in England, is that what they say? Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. We, we seem to be kind of, we seem to have like, we've cornered the market in small things, we've got the smallest window, we have. the smallest snug. <laughs> Apart from Cottingham, which is probably the, the largest village in England, even though it's not really a village, <laughs> it's no, just a town. We've also got one of the, uh, the smallest, but one of the best music venues in the city in New Delphi. Yeah, that's something to be to be genuinely proud of. Well, it's one of those uh, special kind of run-down, DIY, sort of grimy dive, but the places where you find you seek out the best in music, the stuff that you're not going to see anywhere else. We're going to see um, a dance piece at Fruit later, which has become sort of part of the furniture, culturally in all now. And we were just sort of talking about perhaps... The, the threat to some of the places down Humber Street, and we're sort of crossing our fingers that the people who are developing that area will think about their worth. I think, yeah, they think about sense. their cultural worth yeah. and not the monetary worth, yeah. and that's the important thing. Exactly. Well, we're going to look forward to 2017. You were there, weren't you? You were at the launch. I was at the launch. I was greeting dignitaries or the media types uh, coming to the album aisle before they went to Hold Truck for the presentation. I remember I've seen. Sorry, I'm eating crisps. God forgive me. <laughs> They're very nice. They're Piper's chilli crisps. Uh, dig in. You were there on the day in 2013 when it was announced. It was, you? yeah. Can you just go back to that day? Did you think we'd win? No, I did not think we'd win. I thought, I thought that Leicester would win. And, you know, great for them if, if they had done. No bitterness if they had won. Yeah. I woke up at sort of, what is it, seven. We had to be at whole truck for eight o'clock. And we're wandering around and more and more people are arriving and all the world's media were there. And then the announcement sort of came on the screen, the Home Secretary. Was the Home Secretary? Yeah, it was uh, Maria Miller. Yeah, who Maria was Miller. Um, and kind of disgraced. <laughs> She's kind of had to, <laughs> she had to shuffle off. And, and, they uh, all have to shuffle off eventually, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and she announced it. I was the one that, that jumped the, the, the highest <laughs> and leaped the loudest. And yeah, it was crazy. I, I had no idea we were going to win it. I, I think no it was idea. a feeling that maybe Swansea Bay, they sort of felt like the favourites, didn't they? Me and Karen Okra, we delivered the bid to Manchester mm. a few months before because we were the only city to have sort of public delivery of this bid. We, we had this old battered suitcase that Jackie Gay and, and the cultural team and Andrew Dixon had organised. Mm. And we got the train over with these two bikes that had been decorated by Mark Wigan. And we basically knocked on the door and said, we've got our bid. And the guy came down and he was really surprised. And he said, oh, uh, all right, thanks. Everybody else has just emailed there, so I posted it. <laughs> and it sort of felt like the perception had changed. Of all. I remember Phil Redman saying that it just seemed that you wanted it more as a city. And then um, it's been kind of quiet. There's been rumours about what's going to happen. But uh, there was an announcement on the 22nd of September, which you were there for, mm. where they announced the, the first quarter, the first the season. First, the first season, yeah. It's the maiden whole season. So it's from January to March. Oh, we are going to get some Bowie, aren't we? We are going to get some Bowie, yeah. So um, Woody Wubbensy is going to play with, uh, with his band. 
So that's gonna, I think that's going to be at City Hall. So that'll be a... In fact, I think it's even sold out already. I think it's one of those things where when they put tickets on straight away, uh, people just went crazy for it. That's amazing. But, I mean, it's not just whole people buying tickets now, is it? Yeah. It's, it it is an international event. Yeah. So the link, the link there's people the... coming from all over the world. Another thing that I wanted to talk about, you, were, you did the uh, CFO. Mm. What was that day like for you? It is and was incredible. It was a bit of a Damascene moment for me. It needed lots and lots of courage, being trans, to get naked in front of a whole bunch of people and to reveal uh, my body to 3,200 people in Queen's yeah, yeah. Gardens. Uh, we were waiting for Spencer to give us the OK, and then at about five, six, he kind of said, right, it's kit-off time, and it was a case of, take all your clothes off. And it wasn't warm, was it? Covered in the blue paint. But it wasn't, it wasn't cold. If it had been a couple of months later, hmm. yeah. people have been blue for a different reason, I think. But it's just, the yeah. experience, being in a group and doing anything, is a kind of feeling, whether it's being at a football match or being in the theatre. The camaraderie we had was incredible. It, it's a very strange feeling, marching and wandering down Alpha Gelder Street, completely starkers with 3,200 people and then lying down in the middle of the street. <laughs> what are you most excited about in the Maiden Hall section of the 2017 City of Culture? Well, I suppose the thing that I'm really excited about is um, the Coombs stuff. Yeah. Hall used to be a sort of performance art, live art hub. Mm. People would flock to Hull to make work here and to perform work here because there was a dedicated... Uh, sort of audience, mm -hmm. and people would travel for miles to various festivals mm. of live art, performance art, time-based uh, work, mm. and um, having that is going to be great to see some of that work, and obviously Genesis. Genesis P. Orridge, uh, so named because his favourite source of sustenance while he was a student was, was porridge. Um, him and, and this, this Coombe Transitions collective, which then became, they, they sort of went from being an art collective to like a band? Well, the, it was Throbbing Gristle, wasn't it? Throbbing Gristle, yeah. They were pretty controversial, weren't oh, they? Very much so, yeah. They were pushing all the boundaries. They were making work that was really shocking to the everyday person. Yeah. Lots of bodily fluids, lots of sort of sexual references and, you know, stage shows that should be X-rated. One of his uh, sort of compadres in the collective was called... Uh, Cosi Fanny Tutti. Yes. And she's going to be involved in the sort of curation at the new Humber Street Gallery where the exhibition is going to take place. That's right. right. That's right, yes. There's a new sort of contemporary arts uh, gallery uh, going to be on Humber Street. It's ironic that uh, they announced that the same week that they knocked down Red Gallery, which was the 20 year old uh, contemporary arts gallery. I've just walked past there actually. Yeah. And um, it's very surprising to see how different. Osborne Street looks already. Yeah, and they're all kind of been sacrificed for a new, it's called the whole venue, I think, which is exciting. I just think, you know, we're not a kind of densely packed, built up city. Surely you could have found somewhere else to build that. Did you have to build it right in the middle of there? Mm. I think we don't have enough respect for the amount of buildings that survive. The Luftwaffe bombed the shit out of us. It seems like we seem intent on, on getting rid of the things that we have left. You look at Gateshead, they made their mill into the Baltic, the Baltic. Art Gallery. Yeah, and it was artist-led. Mm. And that's why it worked. And it would have been such a great thing if we could have had our flower mill and used it in a similar way. It's, it's incredible. You get people coming from Leeds, Manchester, London, and they see that little 
that middle strip, you mm. know, by the um, by the trawler. Yeah. And uh, they say, oh, if this was anywhere else, this would be like the, the. It'd be a crown jewel, wouldn't it? Yeah, crown jewel. That's the word. But for some reason, we, we just seem intent on pulling things down. We're just pulling things down. But um, to fill the void is the Humber Street Gallery. I think it's only going to be there for a year, but hopefully that'll be a new modern. Yes, art it's space. a sort of year-long pop-up, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I will say that. Having a, an exhibition for Coombe Treasure, it's not, it's not like a safe decision. It's, it's, it's quite a big risk to take in, in your first announcement. It um, is, but I think like Sea of Hull and like some of the other announcements and events that have gone on, there is this desire to say Hull can do these cutting-edge, controversial mm. um, art. And a reminder to people that this is what we used to do. Exactly. In the late 90s, some of the things that I saw at Hull Time-Based Arts would make your hair stand on it. Right. Some of the things were very strange. Not just my hair. Very weird. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and also, Farron's Art Gallery is going to reopen. Yeah. They've got the Lorenzetti piece that's been restored. That's right. And the Pietro Lorenzetti, uh, Siena to Hull, a masterpiece revealed. And the painting, of course, is Christ between Saints Paul and Peter. And that's going to be one of their first exhibitions. I'm really looking forward to, to what Ferrans do, because I think they were behind the Sea of Hull Commission, weren't they? They were. And um, they're not just trying to sustain this kind of little local gallery. They're really trying to force it into the, the, the national consciousness. Very much so, um, yeah. I think a lot of people come from outside of Hull and they go, wow, you've got a fantastic collection. Yeah. And that will expand and they're going to do a rehang and they're going to have visiting artists, David Hockney, yeah, Big Trees. So proper kind of worldwide. Yeah, and of course the big reveal of the, the Spencer Tunick piece. That's going to potentially get... 3,200 people into the gallery yeah. who took part in the in the installation yeah. and uh, maybe don't go in the ferns. Um, what else? Okay, so you? Mingella. Anthony Mingella. One of Paul's alumni. And they're screening uh, Talented Mr Ripley and the English Patient and Cold Mountain in, the, in January at Middleton Hall. Middleton Hall has just had... Uh, a kind of big refurb. Middleton Hall is like one of the um, performance venues at the University of Hull. That's right. Uh, where Anthony McGillar went and was a drama student in the 70s, maybe 80s. And they're doing a retrospective. They're doing a retrospective, yes, from the 24th to the 26th in January. That's yeah. brilliant. So that that's really good. Um, More popular culture with uh, the, the music of John Williams and Royal Philly coming to... The Royal Philharmonic, I, I saw this, and then I've got to admit, I was a little bit disappointed that they were going to do the music of John Williams, who is one of the most famous film composers of all time. Star Wars, Indiana Jones, yeah. Harry Potter, Superman, Jaws... I just thought... Best. And then I thought about it, and I thought, a lot of people will never have been to see an orchestra play live. And if you've never seen that, and the first time you see that, it's yeah. one of the most exciting things. Oh, it's incredible. And this will hopefully sell out. And what a brilliant introduction... To people who would never think of yes, doing this. Definitely, definitely. And that's going to be Hull City Hall, and I'm quite sure it'll sell out. Yeah. Dance-wise, what's, uh, what's happening? Well, Hull Dance have really upped their game in, the, in, the, in recent years, and uh, they've started working directly with choreographers coming to the city and holding masterclasses and workshops with our dancers, trying to retain our dancers, saying that they can work and perform in Hull and they don't have to go off to Manchester, Liverpool or London to hmm. kind of retain that so we can create a, a, a strong sort of community of dancers hmm. that can inspire the new dancers coming up because hmm. they see local dancers kind of making it and, hmm. and making work in Hull. It's how you re retain your artists. It's not just a case if they work here for a little while 
or when they get kind of a bit of profile, off they go to Leeds or London, like yeah, you yeah, said. Yeah. A, a good kind of litmus test of, of, of the health, the cultural health of a city is when people are staying there and saying, we're going to base ourselves here. This will be our kind of jumping off point. Yeah. We're going to premiere our, our, our shows here. People like Middle Child exactly. who haven't disappeared off. Yes, they go and play at Edinburgh and they yeah. play London and they play other cities, yeah. but their home is home. Absolutely. In terms of theatre, I suppose the, the headline uh, show for the Maiden Halls season, uh, the first season of 2017, is The Hypocrite by Richard Bean. Yeah, I was thinking about this, you know. Um, I was thinking about the idea of telling a historical story, uh, a very serious story, um, but it's a comedy. It is. And then I was thinking, okay, so it's a comedy, it's a historical story. And then I thought, well, actually, if we are to learn what happened, we all have a vague idea as to what happened, but we might find out more and remember more and retain more because it's a comedy, because it won't be like a history lesson, a bit like... We know more about the First World War now through Blackadder. Yes, that's a good point. If it had been very deadly serious... Like a history play, yes, where, where yeah. you sort of... Um, I've spoken to Richard Bean about this, and he said that in, in times like these, kind of crazy, farcical things do happen, so it's not inappropriate that we've, we've made a farce out of this. Richard Bean, of course, uh, wrote a play called One Man, Two Governors, and made James Corden a really big star in, in America, as well as he did in, in London. So that's, that's really exciting. It's, it's a co-production with Hull Truck uh, and the Royal Shakespeare Company. Mm. And uh, Mark Addy is uh, going to be playing the lead. I think we're going to have to pause there because we've, we've got to go and see HU1 dance. Um, and it's getting towards Curtain Up. Right. See you in a bit. And that is almost it for the very first podcast. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. We've got some fabulous features and interviews lined up. So if you've enjoyed this one, please listen again. And tell someone else who you think might enjoy it too. Uh, we're on Twitter, we're at Podcast Hull, so let us know what you think. We're going to finish with one last story. Each episode, we get someone to tell us one of their best tales, and in return, we buy him a drink. It is called, wait for it, tell us a story and I'll buy you a pint. I know, snappy. Um, this first one is Tessa Redding, and we were in Pave on Princess Ave. And I can't remember what she had to drink, but she was really funny, so uh, have a listen. Cheers. Okay, everybody has probably heard these stories before. And the stories that I like to tell on a first date. So when I was little, I really wanted a pet, and my parents would never let me have any kind of pet. So I had this kind of obsession (coughs) with other people's animals and animals in the wild. And uh, I used to nick animals (laughs) all the time. So the first thing I nicked was a nest of eggs a full nest of eggs and I thought I'll have this and I'll ra- I'll hatch them and I'll raise these chicks as my own, as my own. <laughs> so I got this bloody nest I got it down and I ran home ran home ran home ran home tripped over the front doorstep and fucking dropped them all <laughs> and smashed them all all the eggs <laughs> so like a couple of months later there was another nest but it had actual chicks in it and I nicked that, I got that, and I took that home. <laughs> but my mum made me take it back, <laughs> so I had to take it back. And then I stole a cat. I stole a cat and kept it in a shoebox in the garage. <laughs> and then my mum found that, so I had to let that go. And then I, uh, a chick had fallen out of its nest, and I thought, I can definitely raise this as my own. 
So I got that, took it home. I had a rabbit at the time. I, I, I did have a pet, so actually, once I got a pet, it, my obsession didn't get any better. And I had this big drum that I used to keep my sawdust in. And I thought, that's the perfect nest for this little chick that I'm going to raise. So I put it in there, put the lid on. It was like a Tupperware box. <laughs> Came back next day, it was dead. Suffocated. One time, where I used to live, there was a load of gypsies with horses. And they used to let you ride the horses for a pound. So I had a quid. And I said, right, I'll have a go on the horse. So my friend Nicholas Anderson said, right, I ride horses. So can we just take the horse? So the gypsies said, yeah. So give him the quid, I got on the horse, and you could have like 20 minutes. We had it for about four hours. <laughs> we was just walking around Brands home, <laughs> me on the horse, and Nicholas Anderson like pulling pulling the horse, not pulling it, leading it. And my mum was washing the pots and she said she just looked up and just saw me sat on a horse. <laughs> so anyway, your mum dragged me back to the gypsies. <laughs> What did they say? What did they My mum had to give him money. I think she had to give him a fiver. But I think I think that's about it for animals. Still. Oh no! <laughs> I um, I nicked a wild rabbit. <laughs> I nicked a wild rabbit from the wild. When I, my first holiday camp, I worked on. It was a baby rabbit, and I, I kept it in my caravan. Well, the thing is, I didn't think it was wild because it was grey and it had a bit of black on it, and I thought all wild rabbits were brown but I was thinking of hairs. <laughs> the end. Shit. Well, it's the only one in the world, apparently. Don't appear. Is that a scanner? No, it's just a recorder. Sound. Alright. Oh, about the coming here, the, um, a few weeks ago, and they were like tapping on the inside and that to like to make some type of music. Alright. I don't know if it was for the Freedom Festival, or yeah. I don't know if it's for something in the future. But there was like tapping all around, you know, oh, right. music guy, and that's what it's supposed to be doing. Right, it sounded yeah. quite good actually.